Hey, welcome to the Harusa Podcast. On today's episode, the moral barometer of baseball's Hall of Fame, the Torah's timeless messaging of mountains, winds, gall nut trees, and their relation to the power of words, and continuing a crucial conversation of ideas for vitalizing tefillah. I'm Moshe Shamran. Thank you for joining me in this exploration of timeless wisdom and, I- and ideas that have guided some of history's greatest men and women for over 3,000 years. The 2021 Baseball Hall of Fame ballot voting is today. And it brings up a great moral debate. As it looks likely, the voting's happening, I think currently as I'm recording this, but it looks likely that nobody in the current class that's up for the vote will actually get elected in. Quite chaotic. And the reason is, although these players, some of them are (laughs) quite good if you look at their statistics, you look at Barry Bonds, who leads baseball history in home runs, has hit the most home runs ever in baseball, uh, which is a pretty cool uh, (laughs) mark. Uh, Roger Clemens, a longtime Cy Young winner for my hometown New York Yankees, Manny Ramirez, Kurt Schilling, some great players, Omar Vizquel, but doesn't look like anyone's going to get in. And that is because a lot of these players, for example, take Barry Bonds, is stained by a history of steroid use, performance enhancing drugs, PEDs, Barry Bonds, Roger Clemens have admitted to using such substances, which boosted their numbers. The question is, Manny Ramirez as well, the question is, what effect or how much should this affect their Hall of Fame status? Now, what's also interesting is some of these other players, for example, Omar Vizquel is is accused of domestic abuse at home. Um, Kurt Schilling is ostracized for some of his political views that, according to some, are outside the fold. And the question is, what effect should this have in their Hall of Fame status? So many, or it looks like the direction of the voters are going to disqualify all these candidates. Um, some of them, this is their last chance to get in. You have a certain amount of years you could try. And the voters are determining that this disqualifies them from from the Baseball Hall of Fame. Now, I would think it's important to make a distinction between Players, for example, they used performance-enhancing drugs at Barry Bonds. His accompli- very accomplishments on the field are under question because they were boosted, uh, perhaps unfairly. Sammy Sosa as well, cork in the bat, steroids. So that, I think, is a, a very legitimate disqualification. Now, it gets a little bit more gray area when you take, let's say, Omar Vizquel or a Kurt Schilling who famously pitched in the World Series with a bloody sock as his foot is bleeding out and he's still uh, pitching an excellent game. So how do we define greatness? The Hall of Fame, you're a famous baseball player. Should your moral character play a role in that? When you see some of these great, Tom Brady's a great football quarterback, unbelievable, his greatness in football, but is he a great person? When we elect somebody to the Hall of Fame, when, when somebody's in the Hall of Fame, what, what's that signifying? What's the definition of a person's greatness? Does their 
morality, does their political views, does their um, private life play a role into their success on the field? Or how much should it play a role? And it's a very, very interesting idea in terms of, of greatness, how we define greatness. What is greatness? Perkeavos really is a commentary on greatness. If you look at Perkeavos, it's a step-by-step guidebook to how to achieve personal human greatness, what makes a human great. And when you think of a great person, you don't necessarily think of the, of athletic greatness, but greatness is more wholesome than that. And you perhaps could ask in the whole foundation, what's the Hall of Fame? What's it there for? Is it for baseball aficionados? And it becomes a strictly baseball thing? Or is it something about the human condition? Is it trying to teach us that, you know, athlete pushes themselves past their limits? And there's something inspiring that a layman could take from that. You take, for example, Hank Aaron, who just passed away. Hank Aaron was a baseball legend who, for a long time, was the home run leader until Barry Bonds eclipsed him. But Hank Aaron was a black baseball player in a time when racism was was rampant and he was receiving death threats and threats to his family while he's playing and he battles through this and not only is he successful on the field and becomes one of the perhaps the greatest baseball player of all time but he also maintain as a person he's he's he he was considered to many to be a true friend, a loyal, the, the presidents are coming out with statements. Like anyone that knows him talks about his character, talks about his, his courage, his fortitude, um, and really what he stood for. And there's um quote here. I, I read a quote about him and he said, his motto, he said, my motto was always to keep swing, swinging. Whether I was in a slump or feeling badly or having trouble off the field, the only thing to do was keep swinging. Which is super cool because this goes into a lot of things we've been talking about is, you know, always stick with it and just do your best that day. And, you know, don't get too high. Don't get too low. Have that sense of equanimity of approaching everything with what can I do this moment? I just got to keep swinging. In an interview in a Connecticut newspaper, he wrote where he said, I was never bitter. If I was, if I were ever bitter, I never would have been able to accomplish what I accomplished. And he had plenty of what to be bitter about. Um, as a prominent black athlete in in his time. Um, he was born in segregated Mobile, Alabama. Uh, started off in the... Started off... Yeah, I think it was in the 70s. In the 70s. In the 70s when he hit the home run, so it was really around the 60s. Anyway, um, but he says he's never bitter, and I think it's it's important. This trait, even if we could learn just this, that being bitter about the past is never going to help us. Dwelling in the past, even if even if a person is a victim, um, and, and not just a, a victim mindset, but they were actually a victim of their circumstances, to realize that there's nobody that could take away your response. That in between the stimuli and the response is you. That's you right there. Nobody could take that away from you and just keep swinging, keep swinging. And, and of course, people that have done wrong should be brought to justice and justice needs, love needs to be tempered by justice for sure. But 
in your own personal life, not to let the past create bitterness now and just keep swinging. That's a true Hall of Famer. As to the rest, it's, it's up for debate and uh, interesting stuff. It's a very unique Torah. This is in Tractate Pesachim on page 53, side 1. Torah teaches, Simen Laharim Milan, the sign or the hallmark of mountains are gullnut trees. Gullnut trees is a type of tree. That's the hallmark of mountains. Now the question begs to be asked is, <laughs> why is the Torah teaching us that the hallmark of mountains are gullnut trees? What is the purpose for this? So, on a legal aspect, from a halachic perspective, there's two reasons. Number one is because if I sell you a mountain and we don't specify about the trees and there's no gullnut trees on there, you could come afterwards and say, hey, 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 that's not a mountain. A hallmark of a mountain is a gullnut tree. It's, it's included in it. And therefore, this sale was under false pretensions, pretenses, pretenses. And the sale is nullified and void. That's one halachic aspect that comes out to it, that if you sell a mountain, a standard mountain's got to have gold trees. The second aspect from a legal halachic standpoint is that one brings their first fruits. Every time you get a, a first crop, a new tree, a new crop, then you take the first fruits and you bring it to Yerushalayim, you bring it to use it in a sanctified um, ceremony, in the temple, it's in Jerusalem, it's beautiful. Um, and the part of the idea is that first thing is always the most precious to you. Um, and in our journey towards personal greatness and our spiritual journey and our relationship with Hashem, you want to bring the things that are really are really good and important to you. You don't want to just like take on something minor. You know, uh, um, I'm uh, working on whatever. You pick something small, kissing a mezuzah. It's like, okay, it's a nice thing. Um but you, you want something that's real, something that, that, that means a lot to you. And you take that and you work on it. That's when ultimate contentment, ultimate purpose and meaning are going to be found. So you take the Bikurim, a Bechor. A Bechor is that first thing, the things that are most precious to you. Of course, this is going to have a lot of um, meaning and depth when you think about the 10th and final plague in Egypt, which was the Makas um, Bikur. Uh, the 10th plague was Makas Bechorus. Makas Bechorus was the the plague of the Bechorus, of the firstborns. So, what does that mean? What's the, why specifically the firstborn? The firstborn is what the culture appreciates. And that's the, the, the concept. There was a cultural clash, uh, the Egyptians and the Jews. But leave that aside for now. That's the significance over here that only a golnut tree on a mountain um, has Bikurim as opposed to an inferior tree, let's say a date palm tree palm trees don't really grow on mountain so let's say you had one that somehow is growing on a mountain that fruit wouldn't be uh, classified for to bring as a bikurim because that's not the, the essential that's not a hallmark of a mountain that's not a real mountain fruit now what's the perhaps uh, another layer here as to what the torah is teaching when it says simen laharim milan the sign of mountains or milan milan means golden trees but milan also means words in aramaic so the signs of mountains are words. What does this mean? There's an explanation by the Ben Yoyada, the author, Rabbi Yosef Chaim of Baghdad. So he was the chief rabbi of Baghdad. Is 
some Iraqi uh, source Torah a couple hundred years ago. And he says the following. He asks, uh, in general, from a mystical, Kabbalistic level, why would Hashem create mountains in the first place? Why create mountains? So, he explains. He quotes the prophet Isaiah, Yeshayo 54, Park Nandalit, that prophesizes that in the times of Mashiach, in the Messianic age, mountains will be removed. Haharim Yamushu, mountains will be removed. He says, what's going on? Why are mountains going to be removed? What's, what's up with the mountains? He says, what's, if you think about mountains, they're not great for living. But you can't really live on top of these mountain peaks. So what's the human utility in the mountains? And he explains because there are super strong wind currents that exist in the world that would technically wreak havoc on civilization. Like think of some super hurricane, tornado type stuff. But the mountains, these tall mountains serve a, a mega purpose for humans because it blunts the winds and it slows them down and keeps human civilization alive without being trashed about in the wind. Now, he asks, asks uh, the Ben Yoyada, Rebbe of Baghdad, okay, so then why didn't Hashem just tame the winds a drop? Instead of creating mountains to tame the winds, he could have just had the winds of less of a force. So he says there's a, a very core mystical Jewish notion that winds are cosmically created, they're creations of the act of human speech. Human speech creates winds. This originates in the Torah. If you look at the beginning of the Torah in Bereshus in Genesis, it says that the human body existed and was animated. It had a nefesh, it had a lower level soul, but it didn't have a neshama. Neshama is a higher level of soul in the Kabbalistic. The idea is there's three... Dimensions to the soul, Nisham is the highest dimension. And said Hashem blows in, Ruach, Vayibach, Berech, Apav, Hashem blows in to, to the human body a, a soul, a Nishama. And the way it's understood, if you look in the Targum there, the Unkalas, Ruach Mimala, a spirit of speaking, a wind of speech, a wind of speech. That's the Nishama, what elevates human above all other creations is this element of of speech and the power of speech and what we could do in our speech both in a positive direction and positive direction we're talking about uh tefillah now and the idea of creation creating words of tefillah and its unbelievable power as well as words of torah words of encouragement to a friend to compliment friendship etc but in a negative way too in any way, speech could be so harmful. Gossip and slandering and talking about other people and negative speech, harmful speech when you when you cause people pain with your words. It's 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 super uh, long-lasting impact in this world, but also on a cosmic level. They, that's where all these destructive winds are created from, from these from speech. Therefore, Hashem needed to create mountains to blunt that speech. And that's who the idea of the prophet Amos, Amos in Parakdalin in the fourth chapter, says, Yotzer Harim Uvore Ruach. Hashem creates mountains, Uvore Ruach, and originates wind. Magid La Adam Masicho. 
and tells people, testifies to people what their conversations are. That's the idea. Hashem had to create mountains. Why? Yotzer Harim, because Uvore Ruach, because there's these creations of winds that took Hashem's initial power of speech that He granted us and used it in destructive ways. Therefore, Magad Adamasicho testifies to the people what their conversations are. If you look at major sources of Jewish tragedies, the destructions of the temples, for example, the base of Mikdash was destroyed. Sinaschinam for Lush and Har for people speaking evil, evil speech, harmful speech, backstabbing each other, talking behind each other's back, insulting people. The the rhetoric was unrefined. We need to refine our language. That's the the idea over here. Simin Laharim Milan. The sign, the hallmark of mountains are words. Mountains exist every time you look at a mountain. The idea here that the Torah is teaching us, aside from on a practical legal sense, the selling of a mountain should include uh, these trees and whatnot. I don't even know what type of tree it is. Got to shore up on my arboretum skills. But it could remind us, it's a reminder that mega winds, mountains, are words, are words of such cosmic and practical reach such power and all the the more so to be cognizant and, and conscious and mindful mindful of our words that's the messianic age that isaiah is talking about that we're going to reach a point where mountains will be removed that people will be able to dwell in unity in this sense of of world peace and coming together in in ideas and in mind and in heart we're able to coexist with each other and see the dignity within each other and work towards a common purpose of of perfecting the world with, with Hashem's infusion to, to see godliness in everything and everyone. Mountains will be removed. I've been getting some great feedback and please, please, please keep it coming, keep it coming. Um, just this morning I got some emojis with a uh, fire symbol. So I think that's good. Like fire, that it's good. It's, it's fire. And I got another message from an awesome Jew out in New York, originally from Maryland who writes, hi, I love how relevant your talks are exclamation point. I was talking about Bridgerton with some friends and how everyone is watching it, but how inappropriate it was. I had skipped many scenes and I thought it was so crazy how normal everyone thought it was. And this is a reference back to the episode sophisticated vulgarity which i personally think is one of the the more deeper um and pivotal conversations that we've had on this podcast and something that's so relevant to the discussion of culture today and the sophistication of the boundaries or lack thereof and how we view the whole concept of being authentic to ourselves and how we navigate so Thank you so much for this feedback. Really, really, really appreciate it. And um, hope to continue hearing and having this conversation both on and off the pod. Picking up the conversation of yesterday's episode, Status Upgrade. We are in a departure from standard Kavrusa learning. We spoke about potential ideas to infuse and revitalize tefillah, prayer service. One of the ideas that we had mentioned was stopping the end time, that there should be no end time, that each person should go at what's going on in their personal inner experience, and that should play itself out instead of being a set 
duration time. And one of the listeners of the Harusa podcast reached out and reminded me, this is a dear friend of mine from our days in yeshiva in Israel, in the Mir Yeshiva, and as is uh, well documented, a friend from yeshiva is a different type of friend than a regular life. Um, because when friends are friendship is forged over ideas and growth and learning, those friendships are are something else. Um, it's 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 an unbelievably deep and, and real real connection. And uh, part of about what's going on with the Harusa podcast and forging uh, connections over ideas and Torah, it's a, it's a wonderful wonderful venture. Now you reminded me that in the mirror we were learning under Rabbi Asher Ari Eli, who we spoke about once on the podcast before. Rabbi Asher is, is unbelievable in his piety and his wisdom and his and his sensitivity and empathy. Either way, Rabbi Asher insisted that the day have no end. So there was a start time for night seder, night the night portion of the learning, because in yeshiva. Um, in the Mary Yeshiva, we were, we were, the day started in the seven o'clock hour and went well into the deep of the evening, unlike a, a standard, perhaps nine to five type schedule. This was seven to, uh, to however long it went for that was Rev Usher's insistence. Rebbe's insistence was there should be no end time for night Seder. It should go until you, until you're done, until you're done. And I think that the same way he emphasized this in, in Torah learning, that it shouldn't have a, a stop time. Same is true with tefillah. As well, I remember when in the mornings we would learn in Yeshiva Paseh, and there, at the end of the first Seder, at the end of the morning Seder, it stopped at 12.15, and at 12.15 on the, on the dot, everybody would just close their Gemaras, close their learning stop with their chavrusas and just ended like on the dot and it always it always bothered me that it became so it became so um so schedulized and so formalized that how can you, you can't just like stop in the middle of a sentence when you're having a conversation that's what I was like in the podcast i have this target idea of how long it should be but you can't like just keep it in the same exact 25 minutes every single day because sometimes the conversation is a little longer, sometimes it's a little slower. And for me, it was always like, okay, let's go a little bit, a minute later, two minutes later, or even two minutes earlier. Again, you don't want to lose any valuable time in learning. But the idea should be is that it should be natural. It should be, let it let it play itself out. And the same is true with tefillah at the end. Let it play itself out. And each person should take it on their own at their own pace, their own space, instead of capping it artificially and uh, putting an end, because that in itself, knowing that there's a sub subconsciously knowing that there's a time that it's going to pick back up, and there's a reconvening that in itself puts on a certain pressure on the individual davener. Mention the concept of applying a philosophy of minimalism to. Judaism, and specifically, particularly in Tefillah. And I'll read a quote here from the Shulchan Aruch and Aruch Chaim. The Shulchan Aruch, the great code of Jewish law, says, Better few supplications with concentration, tov than much without concentration. And that, that's this idea, to figure out going into 
something. I heard it compared to, let's say, a menu. When you go into your favorite restaurant, they have a menu. You can't order everything. You would love to order everything, and everything is great. That's your favorite joint. But each day, something something else resonates with you. Something calls to you that particular day. And the same is true if we could reimagine the Siddur, reimagine the prayer book as sort of a menu of options, of different paragraphs, different sentiments, different ideas, different emotions that we could connect to. And certain words could capture an emotion one day that calls to you that day, the song of that day. And the same is true in, in, in our davening. There's a story somebody once came to Rabbi Nachman of Breslov and and was was pouring out his heart. He said, I, I have such difficulty connecting with prayer. Um, what should I do? And Rabbi Nachman gave him advice and said, think of yourself as if you only need to pray Baruch Sha'amar. Baruch Sha'amar is the beginning of Pesuket de Zimmer. It's the first chapter of song. It's the first uh, paragraph of song to, that introduces the prayer. And says, think, think to yourself that maybe this is your mission. Maybe in a, maybe you're, <laughs> he gave the example, maybe you're like a, Imagine yourself as a reincarnation. You were reincarnated that your previous life, you concentrated on every single aspect of the davening order, except for Baruch Shammar, except for this one paragraph. And just make that your paragraph. And he said, you put all your, your energy into that modest amount, you'll be able to get it with proper concentration. And then afterwards, you could add a little more perhaps, but that's this idea of, of picking one thing and instead of getting overwhelmed by, by the magnitude of the order of the day, um, to connect with that, that one aspect. I'd like to suggest a fifth idea to introduce, to revitalize from a, on a communal level, the davening, the tefillah, the prayer service. Counting yesterday's four, we spoke about the abolishing, canceling Minchamarev, conjoining them at their hip. We talked about re, reintroducing, reclaiming Psuke de Zimra, the paragraphs of song that are getting us into that, into the zone, trying to get us into the, to the mindset instead of just mumbling the words to we gain the the song element of Pesuke de Zimra, the story of, of Aaron of Karlin bursting out in song by Baruch Sha'amar. We spoke about ending the time limit and letting each person naturally, naturally go through the process of their own tefillah experience. And we spoke about introducing uh, periods of silence, both on in a personal level, uh, but also having times where it's just you could just be, and instead of just I need to say I need to catch up, I need to keep the pace to to have installed times, periods that are just silent and just being there in the silence, and the silence itself becomes part of the prayer. It's not just the break, but in it itself is is just holding the presence the same way when you're sitting with somebody uh, that you're comfortable with, somebody. Yeah, you're very close with, you're on a date, for example. The silences are okay if, if, if you're comfortable with that relationship. The silence itself is part of the communication. You don't feel the need to quickly say something, say something, say something. You're just being there with the person. And the same is true with tefillah. We could just be there with Hashem. Now, a fifth idea, and I read this from 
Rabbi Dove Singer's book, and I began tearing up when I read it. It's such a such a beautiful idea. So he says that when, when we approach a community and and we're we're joining together with others, the community. A lot of times we just feel like okay, it's a bunch of individuals that we all need each other in order to complete a minyan. We need ten people, but really, I'm just the individual here that's that's here with the community. And he quotes a Zohar. The Zohar says, the early Kabbalistic uh, compendium of all mystical Jewish mysticism. The Zohar says that every uh, every part of the human body, every limb, corresponds transcendentally to a portion of the tefillah, portion of the davening of the prayer, and each person is associated with a particular limb, and each person that limb coexist with the other limbs in the body but everybody has their own part so you're on a sports team you have the quarterback the linebacker the coach the 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 scouts the wide receivers everybody plays their own different element and the same way as in an orchestra as well you have the flute you have the the piano you have the you have the drums each person will have a different moment of of shining in the in the Philharmonic Orchestra, there are many roles, they'll switch. And and the same is true in a minion, that each person has their own different approach. Each person has their own thing that they connect with, their own thing that they're going through, their own thing that they're struggling with. And when they're coming together, that in itself is the beauty when the community is coming together. That's, that's how we have to... Re- conceive of the whole idea of the communal prayer it's not just a bunch of individuals but it's coming together in a single body each person with different strengths and you'll have the the person that's inflamed that's impassioned about their judaism they're they're burnt in they're they're flaming yeshiva bacher you'll have the the new father that's there the engaged bride the the person that's mourning and the person that's super existentially struggling and and in a sad state, but they're all coming together and all those different emotions and all the different stages and the different parts of your own life that you at one time connected to one aspect and now you're trying to connect to a different aspect or you one time felt connected and now you don't feel connected or vice versa. But all that is coming together and we're coming all as one and saying, it's not all on me. I'm not alone. I don't need to hold everything by myself, but I'm a part of a, of a sacred community. We're here, we're focusing together, we're playing together, we're, we're, we're joining together. And that's the, the, the introduction. And he has such a beautiful suggestion um, to bring this in, um, is to say that a lot of times what people will do, you have your personal things that you're davening for, personal things that you're, you're dealing with. And you just deal on an individual level while everybody else is doing the same. And he says, if you notice, all the of the Amidas in plural sense. And there's a, a reason for that because it's more than just your individual thing. So his idea is, is that at the beginning of davening, before it starts, everybody takes out a piece of paper and writes down their own requests, the own things that they're, that they feel that they're struggling with in life, that they need, they need wisdom, they need money, they need parnasa, they need family, they need more support they need a spouse everybody has their own thing and you mix up all the notes together and everybody randomly chooses one of the notes and sometimes you might even receive your own prayer sometimes you receive one that's similar to your own sometimes it seems 
distant from and strange to you, but then as you're praying it, it unearths within you a new desire, revealing the root of, of the prayer and how it connects to you. And to have that, that instead of, you know that somebody's taking care of your your uh, desires, your deepest desires, and you also have, and you're taking care of, of somebody else, somebody anonymous that you don't know, but they're together with you in the, in the shul. And then in the midst of the davening, you have a certain point where everybody recalls the request of somebody else. And you, you, you plug it into the appropriate places. And what happens is that you have this knowledge that somebody else in the room is davening for you while you're davening for somebody else. You're tied with these invisible strings. And it's no longer just 10 people or 100 people or 1,000 people in the room, but it's one quorum. It's one community. It's one wondrous connection. Such a beautiful uh, such a beautiful idea. I, I absolutely love it. Um, it reminds me of we have this practice that we do on our, our trips when we travel with students to, let's say, Israel, or Poland, or Colorado, wherever we're going, that at the beginning of the trip, the first day, so let's say you go to Israel and, and we, were, we were staying, the last time we did it, we were staying in the old city, and there's not there's not necessarily great vehicular access to roads and, and things, especially in the old cities, winding and ups and downs. Um, wasn't really built for for cars initially <laughs> they built it uh the old city was it's old it's a couple thousand years of of jewish living the temples etc the indigenous jews to the land of israel three thousand years ago were living there and um so cars access isn't great so you imagine you're on a transatlantic flight cross cross country across the world and you get there and you're tired and you're stuck in the middle seat and the leg room is terrible and you finally get through the airport and customs and drive from the airport to the to the place you're staying in. You're just absolutely wiped. And then you have your 50 pounds, exactly 50 pounds, by the way, <laughs> 50 pound suitcase. And you got to take it up a flight of stairs in the old city alley. And what we introduced there at the moment, and I learned this from this practice from Rabbi Benzion Klatsko. He had this this idea, um, and we've incorporated it ever since, is everybody, instead of taking up your own suitcase, pick somebody else's suitcase. Because at the end of the day, everybody's suitcases will get to the top of the hill or get into the apartment. But this way, you're taking somebody else's, somebody else is taking yours. It creates this bond. This We're all in this together. And that's just suitcases. But if we could introduce that by prayer to have this in a, in a standard way that it happens all the time, that we're all in this together. And I get it. It's going to be awkward at first. And, and you know, but once you get used to it and, and the, the advantages that come out of it, I think it's so, so beautiful and, and so connecting. And it really will form that, that minyan, that feeling of, of invisible connection. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Chavrusa podcast. If you have any questions, any comments, any ideas, please reach out and share. My number is 347-893-4467, or you can email chavrusapodcast at gmail.com, or reach me at Moshe Shomron at any of my social media pages. Thank you so much again for joining me in this exploration, timeless ideas, and wisdom, and deep stuff. All the best. <laughs>